Okay, so now this, in this last session today, we're going we're gonna to be wrapping up the, uh, the major nutritional elements that you have to address to have balanced fertility in the soil. So we're going to now, we're going to switch over to the, we've covered the four major cations. Um, we're going to cover more cations, but they're in the, they're the minor and the trace elements, um, the metals that are in the trace elements, we'll still be covering those. But the major cations we've covered now, um, we're going to look at the major anions. Remember, the anions are the, the negatively charged elements, and they don't attach to the colloids. They're actually stored in a different way. They're either leached out, or they react with the elements in the soil, or they're stored in organic matter in humans <laughs> in the soil. That's why I said that's part of the complex that provides the fertility to your soil. And Organic matter and compost, or organic matter and carbon fertility is, is a key to actually starting to store up and reserve some of these anions so that you have them in reserve to provide for your crop in the future. Because like I said, we'll see as we go through this, um, we're not covering all the anions, too. there's some, some trace element anions too, and boron and molybdenum, um, <clears throat> that you lose them pretty easy. And so you, uh, you want to get them built into to life somewhere so that it gets stored up. Okay, the three we're going to look at is ni are nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. The first one we're going to look at is nitrogen. It's in two forms, actually. One is an anion and one is a cation. The ammonium form, which is NH4, is the single plus charge, and it can actually attach to the colloids, just like the, the alkaline cations can. Uh, when you put it on in this form, you don't have to worry as much about it leaching out of the soil because it can attach there. So it's not as soluble and it, and it doesn't leach as easy. The other form is in the nitrate form, the NO3 with a single minus charge. NO3 is highly soluble and highly leachable in that form. Nitrogen is involved in vegetative growth, protein and enzyme formation, chlorophyll production, and it is mobile. So in other words, your, your deficiency symptoms are going to show up on the bottom of the plant again. Uh, I've got a little chart I'm going to try to, to try to put on a slide that we can put out there or maybe get a copy of. And it, it's, a, it's a flow chart that helps you to determine what the deficiency is based on is it showing up in the young part of the plant, is it showing up in the old part of the plant, uh, and, and these varying factors. And they, where, you can take this chart and just narrow it down. Okay, this is most likely what the deficiency is with what you're seeing based on where you're seeing it. I put this slide in here. It's, the, it's a slide of the, the nitrogen cycling in the environment. And it kind of shows you all of the factors that go into nitrogen cycling. Um, I'm not going to go through every, every aspect of this. The reason I put it in here is because there's tons and tons of nitrogen it's one of the, the air elements. There's tons and tons of nitrogen above every acre of land. And when you get complete and balanced fertility, when you get a, when you get a healthy growing system, there is no reason you can't acquire all your nitrogen from the air. This is especially important for organic growers because nitrogen is a big challenge for organic growers and they tend to overapply certain materials in order to try to get the nitrogen. Um, and we'll look, at, we'll look at how you do that, but um, that's the reason I put it in there. It's just to show the difference, the way nitrogen comes into being and then how it goes back out again. 
but it cycle, it readily cycles. And so the, the, the problem is, is we've disrupted. Well, let me just ask you this. You drive down the road and everything, you see all this green grass and fields and green trees and everything like that. Where do you think they get their nitrogen? They're not being, it's not being applied. But they seem to, they seem to always have, they seem to always be green when they, when they seem to have the nitrogen when they need it. Well, it has to do with the, the, this natural cycling system and microbes, soil biology in the soil, they can actually provide all that nitrogen for you. But they require conditions, and you have to meet those conditions in order for that to happen. Now, in a natural, you know, in a, a non-disturbed system, it happens, like I just said. But if you're growing vegetables, fruits and vegetables, and you're, you're taking high loads of, of fruits and vegetables off of that ground, it requires a lot more nitrogen. Um, we, actually, we actually go through, on some of our tomato crops, we, with the yields we get, we can go through five to 600 pounds of nitrogen. Um, in one shot. So that's over a several month period. The natural, the natural nitrogen cycling system is not up to that unless the, you've got optimum conditions in the soil to, to achieve that. The sources for nitrogen, both in the ammonium form and the nitrate form, are ammonium sulfate, 21% nitrogen, 24% sulfur, it's a great source for, particularly because so many people need sulfur, this is a really good source of nitrogen. It, it, because it's in the ammonium form, it's not gonna leach out on you very, very easy. Um, the only thing you have to be careful with is that ammonium sulfate in its size can actually plug up the, the edges of those clay plates like the potassium did. So you have to be careful, you know, you don't wanna overuse it, you only, only use it to the extent that you need it. Um, there are some other commercial sources here before I go into the others. There's some other commercial sources I don't have on here. I don't have urea on here, which is a 46% nitrogen. It's not a bad source. It, 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 you, you may want one of the ones that's stabilized. Because if it, it hits the ground and they touch each other, you're going to lose your nitrogen, your ammonium. They're going to react and you're going to lose your nitrogen to the air. And so you've got to get it incorporated right away. They have ones that are coated now, so they, I can't remember what they call it, but it's the they put a coating on it and so it doesn't do that reaction so bad. Uh, there's also ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate, since we've had too many uh, fertilizer plants blow up, is not readily available anymore um, since it's so highly reactive. They don't, they don't make it very available. The fertilizer placed up in Kentucky where we are, can't, they can't get it anymore. They used to carry it, but they can't even get it. Um, so there are some other commercial sources. I'm, not, I'm trying to list the ones that I think are the most, the, the most efficient at, at um, building balanced fertility. The other one is protein meals, what I, and the, the, the content is variable. What I mean by protein meals would be things like uh, fish meal, blood meal, feather meal, soybean meal, uh, cottonseed meal, um, and there's one I'm missing here. Alfalfa meal, so a protein meal, and they vary in, in how much material they have in it. The nice thing about protein meals is that they break down more slowly, so if you're growing uh, like leafy greens like uh, lettuce and stuff like that, they actually like that slower release of nitrogen in the system, uh, so, and they break down over time. So you can put you know, a larger amount of it on and, uh, and have it break down over time. Rather, you know, it's, It usually takes 
uh, anywhere from three to nine months. It depends on the, how, the temperatures and, and uh, the biological activity and everything on that. Uh, the other source, another source is compost and manures. And again, the, the uh, content is variable on those, and depending on the, the source. Uh, and it can depend on the feed that, that the animals are being fed, too, as to you know, what that content is. They're a good, a good source, of course, of course, because you're getting more than just nitrogen in them. You want to be sure that you need whatever you're getting in it. And uh, like, for example, if you're already high in phosphate, then you're not most likely to be using those. Uh, even on the protein meals, and we'll look at it when we get to phosphorus, you, when you get high in, in phosphorus, you can't, it's not easily gotten rid of. Everything else can be leached out or removed, but phosphate, uh, it, it's not the case with that. So you need to pick and choose those. And, and manures, like for example, you can have, like with chicken manure, you can have both broiler manure and you can have layer manure. And the, and the broiler manure is not going to be high in calcium. But the layer manure is going to be really high in calcium. So you have to be sure, be careful, you know, knowing what you need and then making sure that you pick sources that will provide those needs and not aggravate something that you may already have a problem with. Um, enzymatically digested fish typically is 2 to 3 percent nitrogen. Uh, it's a pretty good source because it's a, a steady breakdown source as well and because it's, uh, the, well they have some domesticated sources now where they raise the fish just like, you know, aquaponics, but they, they raise the fish now and then for, for food and then the, the remains they, they grind up and they enzymatically digest it. It's, it's a lot, it's the enzymatic digestion as opposed to an emulsion is it preserves the, the amino acids and everything whereas an emulsion can damage, do a lot of damage. And emulsions where they use steam to remove the, 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 the uh, flesh, if they're using chlorinated water, you can have really high levels of chlorine in those emulsions if you're not careful, so you have to. But the enzymatically digested fish is more stable. Uh, it preserves, preserves a lot of the amino acids a lot better and everything than the, the emulsions do. The emulsions, you'll always see a higher nitrogen content, and it'll usually be up about five. That means that they've it means that they've steamed it and they've concentrated it. They cooked it and concentrated it down. Naturally, you'll never see more than two to three percent nitrogen content from fish. So if you see anything higher than that on it, you know it's been cooked and concentrated down. And the last one, which I like the most, actually, uh, after I've had some experience with it, is the symbiotic and the free living nitrogen fixers. A lot of you, if you grow legumes, like if you've grown beans or something like that, you, you know about the rhizobium bacteria, the nitrogen, the, the symbiotic nitrogen fixers that you inoculate with when you're, when you're planting those crops. What most people don't know about are the, the free-living nitrogen fixers that don't have that symbiotic relationship with, uh, with the legumes. And they, they grow, they're free-living. And there's leaf-dwelling ones and there's, there's soil-dwelling ones. Azotobacter, cyanobacteria, um, oh, I just lost the other one. But there, there's several of them. Now, some of the catches in, the, in order for these to work, you have to have good balanced fertility for these to work. You can't be applying a lot of soluble nitrogen because they'll get lazy. They'll get lazy just like any of us. And if it comes easy, hey, why work? Why work to get it? And so if you're using too much soluble nitrogen, they're not going to do their job. 
And so you need to make this transition where you can, you can slowly wean, wean the soil system off of the, the nitrogen fix and get it so that it's actually functioning and working. Okay, the question is what would be sources for those? There's a whole bunch of sources out there. Um, Bob Jorgensen used to have one, and I don't know if they still have it on their website or not, uh, uh, from um, um, Blooming Blossoms, Bionaturals. Uh, there was Bioplin, which is uh, a, an azotobacter, I think. There was a soil, soil applied one, and then there was um, Nutrifolier, I think, which was a, a leaf or a foliar applied nitrogen fixer. That's the, the, I know about them because I'd, I'd work, I knew he had it and I was working with that. There are several other companies and I don't know what all they are. If you look for, if you look for biological inoculants, not biological stimulants, you, if you want to look for biological inoculants where actually you're inoculating with a, um, an organism, if you look for nitrogen-fixing biological inoculants, I'm sure you'll probably pull up a dozen companies that, that do that. Um, the other thing you can do, which was brought up earlier, is to make compost tea. And there's going to be free-living nitrogen fixers. And even if you're going to inoculate with a, within a, a biological, adding that biological into your compost tea um, will increase it and, and make it more effective because you're providing a, a food source for it at the same time. And so that's, that'll, that'll help it work a whole lot better on that. But obviously you can, get, you can get either the symbiotic ones if you're growing legumes, but you can also get the free-living ones. The thing is that you don't want to spend a lot of money on these inoculants. You want them to become endemic. In other words, you want them to become just native to your soil. But they're not going to become native to your soil unless the conditions are there for them to do that. So, you know, the question was, uh, as far as compost tea, what ingredients would you use in there? It depends on what, what you're trying to emphasize. If you're trying to, if you're trying to emphasize fungal domination, if you're trying to increase your fungal populations, you're going to use harder to digest things. So you might use some oils and fish oil in there. Um, I think I, I understand that oatmeal works really well, like like baby food oatmeal, the little flakes, uh, work, works really well. If you want to, if you want more bacterial dominated, I always try to do a balance. Well, I'll tell you what I do in a second here. Um, you'll want to go to more easily digested things, so you'll put, you'll put sugars in there or, or those types of things as energy sources. You might put molasses or, or uh, sucanot. I use, if I use a sugar, I usually use sucanot, which is a whole cane juice. It's an organic whole cane juice, so they just squeeze the juice out of the sugar cane and then they dehydrate it. So it's got all the minerals and, and all the other nutrients in with it. Uh, it's just a whole cane sugar. So, but that'll, that'll feed the bacteria and they'll, they'll multiply on that one. Um, putting some a little bit of nitrogen in there sometimes. One of the one of the places that, that does a really good job with that. And again, if you look at if you look at compost tea, you can pull a gazillion um, probably YouTube videos and sources for for compost tea makers and sources. Uh, and so most of them have pretty good compost tea makers now. I mean, there's tons of them available. You can get a five gallon bucket and a, a pump and a aerator and everything and you just and they have pretty good instructions about doing that stuff now what I did I, when I was out in Colorado um, I was bringing humus down from Alaska 
it was, it was, I could get it fairly inexpensively shipping wise. It was a waste product up there because they had to dig it out. They had to dig it all out. They couldn't build on it. And they had a building boom going up on up in Alaska. And so they had to dig it all out to get down to stable ground um, to build on. And so they get mountains of this stuff all over the place. And some of the, the world record, John Evans, who holds most of the world record for vegetable size, that's what he grew it on. He grew it on this Alaskan humus, making compost tea from that Alaskan humus. And the results were a 24-pound celery. I mean, the thing was huge. It was like this big. And he had a summer, a, a zucchini squash. I don't know, it was like this. And he was, you know, holding the thing up. Uh, I was bringing it down by the yard, by the yard load, by whole semi-loads. And I was putting it in my, putting it in my greenhouse. Um, but then it started getting popular and it started getting more expensive. And so I switched over to just doing compost tea with it. The reason I use the Alaskan humus, it's a native humus, it's clean, and it has so many species in it, they don't even, they can't even, they don't even know what they all are yet. Just tens of thousands of species of fungi and, and, and bacteria and arthropods and things like that, and it's a, it's a native humus, and so you can take that and you can make your compost tea from it. You know, sometimes the materials you get to make the compost tea, you want to be really sure that you're getting good material to do that. It's not got a bunch of contaminants in it that's going to mess up your mess up your finished product because you didn't know it was in there when you were starting to make the compost seed. But that's what I prefer to use. And so you can just buy a 40-pound bag of that and you can make tons of compost tea from it because you're multiplying those, those organisms out of, the, out of the, the humus. And you can get that at uh, Peaceful Valley's Farm Supply. has it out in California. Organic Bounty, B-O-U-N-T-E-A. The, oh, the website is bounty.com. B-O-U-N-T-E-A, like in compost tea. It's not, it's not T-Y, it's T-E-A. Bounty.com, they have compost tea makers. They have ingredients to add, depending on what kind of compost you're, you, tea you're kind of ma trying to make. And they have the Alaskan humus. You can get it from there. Or you might talk to Larry. I, did you bring a couple of uh, 6,000 pounds of it? Um, <coughs> But I, I just, like I said, I just make compost tea out of it. And compost tea, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it more there, but compost tea, uh, I know that uh, Uncle Matt's down in Florida, they spray compost tea every 30 days. They have no disease pressure at all on their trees where everybody around them is having all kinds of problems. And I, I've heard that out of growers in California and other places, the use of compost tea, they're getting, they're getting protection from the microbes coming out of the compost tea. They're spraying onto the leaves and, and, and getting a benefit from it. So. Um, but yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about the carbon stuff when we get to the, the carbon fertility class. Peaceful Valley Farm Supply. They get it from Organic Bounty, from Bounty. Oh. They bring it down for them, isn't that right? They, they, they bring it down for them? Yeah. I know Roland Evans who started Organic Bounty. It was Organic Bounty, now they just go by Bounty. Um, his brother is John Evans. He's the one that holds most of the world records. You would be surprised what you can actually grow. Um, how many you know what the world record for potato production is on, off of one plant? Any guesses? How much? 3,000 pounds off of one plant? Well, you're ambitious. <laughs> the world record is, the, com the average commercial yield is about two pounds per plant, about two pounds per plant. The guy who holds the world record produced 100 pounds per plant. 
Um, it made me think of it because he started talking about it. He finally quit because nobody was, he got bored of it. Nobody, nobody was um, giving him any competition, so he wasn't motivated. But uh, what he did, what he simply did was, he took his seed potatoes, and before he put them into storage, he soaked them in a 25% kelp solution. He took them out, let them dry out, put them back into the storage. Every 30 days, he brought them back out, soaked them in a 25% kelp solution, put them back, dried them out, put them back into storage. And he did that all the way through the storage season, and then in the spring, when he was ready to plant them, he would bring them out again, he'd soak them in a 25% kelp solution, cut them, green them. You know what greening is, or, or chitting, they call it, where you cut their pieces and then you, you let them start sprouting, and, and the sprouts are a lot shorter and, and stronger and everything. He'd do that, then he'd go out and he'd run his furrows, put the potatoes in, spray them with fish and kelp, plant them, and then he'd continue to spray them with fish and kelp through the year, and he got 100 pounds per plant. I'd be happy with five. You get five pounds per plant, you know how much, how much money you can make off of potatoes off an acre? Uh, if you could just get it up from two to four or five, five pounds, you could, um, you could produce a lot more potatoes on a lot, a lot less space. And that potential, uh, John Kemp from Advancing EcoAg, he's a young Amish guy, really sharp guy. Um, he contends, and I agree with him, that the genetic potential is not even close to being achieved. He said if a, if a, if a plant puts on, he said uh, cantaloupe, I remember talking about cantaloupe, he said cantaloupe put on dozens of blossoms, of uh, you know, female blossoms. What if they could actually set all of that fruit and produce it? He said and it's all about we're not giving them the resources, the means of actually being able to fulfill that, that genetic potential. And so that's the whole, that's the whole goal here is to, you know, to create the conditions so that you have that, that potential fulfilled to the extent that you can. I think we could be a whole lot more productive than we are and a whole lot more profitable as a result. And on top of that, you have the benefit of much better health and wealth. Yeah, and then that's the other thing is your seed stock. As you save seed from that and the vigor goes up on your seed. I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I've been having more and more issues with seed vigor. The, the, the quality of the seed is going downhill. You get, you know, really poor germination and, and everything because there's, the reason for that is there's just not enough, the seed is being deprived of the, 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 the nutrient package that it should have to get itself going. It has to depend on the soil. You know, it ha when you throw that seed in the soil, it has enough to get it going, but then it has to connect in with that soil and begin taking that nourishment from the soil. And if the soil you know, time after time after time is not providing adequate nourishment, your seed vigor goes down, downhill, and, and next thing you know, it's, it's just really not being very productive. Remember, the potatoes are, are respiring. They're still respirating. They're alive. And, and uh, one was it was keeping it fully mineralized. There's growth hormones in, the, in the, the kelp solution, and so I think that that was play, is playing a role in it. Um, I actually, I didn't do the whole thing. Most people just say, oh, I forget to do it and whatever because you're having to take it out every 30 days and, and do it. But if you, if you only had to do that to 100 pounds and you got, out of that you got 10,000 pounds of potatoes, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to do. But I, I actually did it when I started doing the spraying. I sprayed them when I put them down, planted them and everything. And man, they just came out of the ground and they were just taking off and going crazy. And then I got distracted with the child graduating from college and... And uh, you have to have, you can't, you can't lean on that. If you have that really good fertility in the ground, How many then. How pounds did you get? 
How many pounds did I get? I've gotten up to four. Yeah. I'd, re I'd be happy at five. I'd be really happy at ten. And I think, I think it's doable if you get the right variety. And, and you can, what you have to do is you have to start saving that seed stock and start increasing the vigor and the potential in it up higher and higher and higher. And, you know, I haven't been able to do that yet, but I think that that's the next step up where you start getting, because I've seen in some other instances where growers have, have done that, where they've started saving their seed stock and, uh, and they started, you know, ratcheting those yields up. You can use biology, we'll talk about that when we get there, but you can use biology to do all kinds of things. They, they uh, discovered a bacteria that if they, if they uh, inoculated with it, they were growing these little carrots that were like the size of your fingers, and they couldn't just grow good carrots. So they discovered this bacteria that if they inoculated the soil with it, um, they could grow carrots the size of your arm. Problem is, the next year you went back to little scraggly carrots. You want to you want to put a, a complete and balanced system in there and just continue to to raise it up and inc increase it and improve it and get it so that you're actually getting that on a consistent basis on, every year. Like I said, I think we can do a whole lot better than we are, but you have to have the right model, and that's what we've been missing. We're missing in a, in a lot of ways in a lot of things. If you've got the right model and you employ that right model, then things go a whole lot better than most people are used to. Okay, um, phosphorus. So we don't run out of time here. Phosphorus is P with a, a negative, a three negatives, three minus charges, that's why it's so highly reactive, and it locks up. It locks up in the soil in a hurry. What you want it to do is react with something that'll readily give it back up, and that's where you, you get your, your phosphorus levels at levels that are optimum. But its roles are in reproductive growth, part of genetic material, energy storage and transfer, early root growth, aids in blooming and fruiting, speeds crop maturity, and it is mobile. So you would find your deficiency symptoms in the older part of the plant first, in most cases. Deficiency symptoms are stunted growth because of lack of energy. You can see reddening or purpling of leaves. If you ever see that? Now, sometimes that could be magnesium too, but in most cases, if it's on the underside of the leaf, it's purpling, uh, there's a good chance you're not getting enough phosphate. Poor or no flowering or fruiting. So if you get plants that grow and they Set, they put flowers on, but they never set fruit, um, or they abort, fall off. There's a good chance you don't have enough phosphorus. It could also be boron, but it, it, in a lot of cases, sometimes it's, you don't even get the flowers. So there's nothing to set fruit on. Okay, excess, excesses. Phosphorus is the heavy hitter on the anion side. Calcium is the heavy hitter on the, the one side. You notice how they come together in nature? the calcium and the phosphate together. But phosphorus is the heavy hitter on the anion side and the excesses tie up other nutrients. And the, the danger with this one is, like I said, nobody knows how to get rid of excessive phosphate except growing it out. And I can tell you from everybody that I've talked to, the people that are trying to grow it out are still trying to grow it out. And some of them have been doing it for 20 years. So, not something you want to get out of whack if you can at all avoid it. 
The best you can do if you get a situation like that where you have excess amounts of it is raise everything else up to the highest levels you can raise them up that are antagonistic to it because that's the only way you're going to get enough of those. So all the other anions are going to be antagonistic, so you'd raise your sulfur levels as high as you could. You've got to raise your boron levels as high as you can. You probably have to use more nitrogen um, to offset the, the uh, suppressive effects, the tying up effects of the, the excessive phosphate. And you also get poor growth with excessive phosphate, and that's a consequence of the other nutrients being tied up. You just get poor growth because your other nutrients are not sufficiently available, and so the plant just doesn't grow very well. Okay, phosphorus sources. Uh, first one there is hard rock phosphate. That's the material, apatite rock, that's the material they make the commercial sources of, of phosphorus from. It's hard to find, you're not, not going to very easily find it. Most of the, the the companies that own the quarries for hard rock phosphate don't sell it that way and won't let you buy it that way. They, they want to produce it into a commercial source. Liability, there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons they don't want to have anything to do with it. They're set up to produce triple super phosphate and uh, that's what they're going to do. It's 24 to 30% phosphorus, and it's up to 30% calcium. These two always come together in all the natural sources, and it's a long-term source. If you ground it up into a, a finer powder, it might become a little bit more readily available, but in general, it's a long-term source. I wish it was available still, because you could use it. One of my goals is, and you, if you were over in any of Bob Gregory's classes, it's one of his one of his priorities is how do we build up reserves in the soil that can be tapped in the future. And so I wish that this was still available because then you could take it in a little bit coarser grind and put it onto the soil and with time in a balanced soil, the microbes in the soil would release it and give you calcium and, mag and phosphorus you know, over a long span of time. Okay, the other sources, colloidal and reactive phosphate. They're basically the same thing, just a little bit, a little bit different uh, the way they were formed, but they more or less have the same content, more or less 20%. P2O5, I didn't put P2O5 on there. If, if you want the actual content in actual phosphorus, you have to multiply that by 0.44. You have less than half of what, so it would be somewhere in the 8% actual phosphorus range there. Um, so when you look at it that way, there's a lot more calcium in it than, than uh, but P2O5 orthophosphate is the, the way that the plant takes it up. So um, The next one is, is MAP, what they call MAP, monoammonium phosphate. This is a manufactured source. It is a, it is a clean source and it is, it is a very, it has demonstrated itself to be extremely beneficial to the, the soil biology if phosphate is needed because it's already in a pH that's stable. It's not in one of those extreme pHs, and so it goes into the soil and it, it'll disassociate and become available, but it won't do, be doing a lot of damage in the process. It's 11% nitrogen, 52% P2O5 on that. There's another one called MAP, ADAP, D-A-P, diammonium phosphate. It's 18% nitrogen and um, 46% P2O5. It's okay. I don't prefer that because of the high ammonia content, the higher pH. Uh, it's not preferable, but again, 
if that's the only source people have available to them and they need the, the uh, phosphate, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't resist recommending it. DAP, dye, so it's dye instead of mono. It has, you know, basically twice as much, not quite twice as much ammonium in it. Uh, I, I have to ship in monoammonium phosphate if I want it. Everything that's around me is diammonium phosphate. And if they don't need it, like if they're putting it on alfalfa fields or something for the phosphorus, because alfalfa, the legumes use a lot of phosphate. They use a lot of calcium, they use a lot of phosphate. And if they put it on, I asked the guy, well, what are they, why are they putting all that nitrogen on? He said, oh, this is a cheaper source, so we just get it. And they just let it off gas into the air. And, and uh, just because they just want the phosphate part of it. I said, well, why don't you just get monoammonium phosphate then? Because then they get more phosphate and there's less nitrogen. Well, it costs more money. So. All right, bone meal. Bone meal is what hard rock phosphate is. <laughs> just fossilized, basically, is what it is. So again, it's 21 to 30% P2O5, 1 to 4% nitrogen, because it's, it's younger and the nitrogen hasn't volatilized, uh, and 20 to 30% calcium. So you have, you have animal bone meal, you have fish bone meal, like from, from sea fish, where they separate the bones out and they make a meal out of it. Uh, I would be more inclined to use the fish bone meal if I was gonna use one or the other, but um, it's all bone meal. And then compost and animal, manure, animal manures, 0.5 to 3% generally, of P2O5 and those. Of course, I'm not listing all the other stuff that comes with compost and animal manures, like the nitrogen and the, and the potassium. This is the spot, this is the place that organic growers get themselves into the most trouble with compost and animal manures because the, the, the phosphate, the, the potassium, a lot of the crops are growing are using a lot of potassium or it can leach out. Remember, you can use sulfur to leach it out. Phosphate's not going anywhere. And so they'll put these heavy loads of compost or animal manures on. The potassium will be used up or leached out, but the phosphate doesn't get used up and it starts building and building and building until you've got excessive phosphate levels. And uh, your crops, your vegetative crops start tasting bitter and you, you start getting tie up of other nutrients. And uh, there, 75% I, I, of the growers that I know are organic that I work with have that problem already, and they have to be told stop. Some of them, you know, like the dye singers, for example, they're just on that, that reactive phosphate, Tennessee brown phosphate ore body. They have it there naturally. But we had to, they, had to, they had to largely stop applying any organic materials on there, have to switch over to compost tea, because applying those organic materials on there just stimulates the biology to break even more of that phosphate out. And, uh, and, and adding the material with the organic materials, you're adding phosphate with it too. So it was hurting them. So knowing that, that, this is where it's important to know what your parent material is. You, you need to know what the disposition of your soil is. What is it wanting to express? Like in their case, it wants to express phosphate and calcium and the impacts that those two things have on growth. You know, where I was the last time out in Colorado, we were on an acid sandstone formation. Most people think that all of Colorado is high pH soil, but we were on an acid sandstone formation, and we had virtually nothing. Um, and so we had to supply everything. The pH of our water was 5.6. Really acidic. We had to run it over a, uh, 
we had to run it over a bed of, of, of finely ground marble, high purity calcium carbonate. We'd run it over a bed of that, and it dissolved the calcium in there and raised the pH up there. We could run it over magnesium oxide too, and it would raise it up even more. The problem with the magnesium oxide is it keeps dissolving, so if your water was sitting in that tank, it'd take the pH all the way up, until you used it the next time, it'd take the pH, up, pH all the way up to 11, and you'd run the water out, and you'd have, pH, you'd have to let it run out a little bit, or it'd, get, it'd be pretty potent. Um, but the parent material is gonna, is gonna express itself. When we were out at Eden Valley, it was granite-based soils, and the calcium had, had, had left out of it easier, and so we had high potassium, high magnesium soils. So it's important that you know what your, your parent material is, because you gotta know what, it, what it's wanting to do. It's gonna want to express itself. You've gotta impart the right character to that. And you've gotta keep imparting that character. That's why you die daily, by the way. Is you've, got to, you've got to recognize the disposition of that soil and you've got to impart the right character to it and subdue that, that desire to um, express itself. And if you ever stop, if you do it for a long period of time, well, you'll build more and more depth into that imparted character. But if you ever stop, guess what that soil is going to do? It's going to go right back to what it wanted to express in the past because that's what it is. Well, it actually takes it up in the P2O5 form, P2O5. yeah, the phosphate form. It, it takes it up in that form, not in, the, not in the ionic P3. I just represent it that way to show the charge that it actually has. And, and when it reacts, especially if you put it in the, you put it in the form like of triple superphosphate. I'll finish the story now that we're on sulfur with the, triple, with the, the phosphate here in just a second. But uh, it wants to... When you put it in that triple, they've brought the pH down to three on triple superphosphate. And so the soil's gonna immediately, nature's gonna immediately try to move that to a stable form up near seven, to just a slightly acidic form. Tie it up, and that's what happens. It gets tied up, react. What happens is it goes back to rock phosphate. Reacts with calcium. It could go to iron phosphate. It could react with iron. And I'm actually having a problem on my ground up in Kentucky with phosphate, we've put the equivalent of about 500 pounds of phosphate on, and we've only had an increase of about 100 pounds. But we have really high iron levels, and I think what's happening is our iron, because uh, Neil had told me, he said there are some soils, they just swallow it up, and until they're satisfied, you're not gonna see a build on it. And I think we have high iron levels where they were probably getting uh, iron tying it up as iron phosphate, because we should have had a 500 pound increase and we haven't seen, but maybe 20% of that show up, so, but I suspect that's what's happening. Some soils, they just, they have a need for it until they're satisfied, until the hunger of the soil is satisfied for what it needs to be to stabilize it, to balance it out, then sometimes that happens and then you don't, but sometimes it's the, the, the form that you're putting on. You can do a phosphate retention test and they'll test different forms. There was a giant banana grower down in Costa Rica that was deficient in phosphate and they kept putting it on, putting it on, I can't remember which form they were using. I think they were using the, the commercial form, a monoammonium or diammonium phosphate, or maybe it was triple superphosphate, I don't remember now. And it wasn't building either. They did a phosphate retention and showed that, that uh, rock phosphate, soft rock phosphate, would build. And so they brought a whole shipload. This is a huge operation. I'm not kidding, a whole shipload of, of a colloidal phosphate. 
down there so that they could build their levels. And that form would build it, whereas the other forms wouldn't build it. And some of these things, nobody just, we really don't have a good handle on why those things happen. They just, they're that way. And nobody's invested the time and energy to, to figure out why. I was putting both uh, colloidal, uh, Tennessee brown phosphate and monoammonium phosphate. And I'm not, uh, yeah. I'm hoping this year I'm going to see a difference. That it's got, it's satisfied. And my concern is I don't want it to all of a sudden express itself. And next thing you know, I'm shooting over the top and, and it got way too much. Okay. Um, we need to keep moving here because we're about out of time. All right, sulfur. Sulfur is a double negative charge. You would think with that double negative charge, it would make it stick in the soil, but sulfur is highly leachable. It leaves the soil easy. And one of the reasons it does is because it reacts with other nutrients that solubilize, cause to solubilize the other cations, uh, the major cations, it reacts with them easily. And it, that leaves it in a more ionic form, both of them in a more ionic form. So it makes it, it, makes it leachable. Easier leachable. It, it's, its roles are in the production of sulfur-containing proteins. That role right there will make a huge difference in how sweet your, your produce is. If you get the sulfur-containing proteins and the functions that they do, you will get melons that are sweet. You will get, um, I don't care what it is, broccoli, tomatoes. The sugar levels will go up in it. It, sulfur and copper. Sulfur and copper make a huge difference in the sugar levels in your crops. Um, chlorophyll production, nodulation of legumes. If, you're, if you don't have adequate sulfur and you're trying to, you're trying to use rhizobium bacteria, they're not going to do much. If you really want them. And actually, sulfur is the one element that will rapidly increase your humus formation. Because most humus formation actually comes from microbe generations, it doesn't come from plant residues. And uh, it's through carbon induction, which we'll talk about when we do carbon fertility, that you're going to, if you really want to build your humus levels, you better keep your sulfur levels at optimum levels all the time. Okay, deficiency symptoms, they're similar to nitrogen deficiency, except they're kind of an overall pale green color of the leaves and it tends to work from the top down. You, you'll have a pale green color to the, to the plant. Excess, uh, excess sulfur, the symptoms of other anion deficiencies due to suppression. When you get excessive amounts of sulfur in there, it's gonna suppress the phosphorus, it's gonna suppress the nitrogen, it's gonna suppress the boron. It'll actually cross over and suppress, suppress potassium and some of the other cations. Um, so you just get the symptoms of other anion deficiencies because they're suppressed and so you're not getting enough of them into the plant when you have excesses. Sulfur sources. Elemental sulfur, which is 90 to 92 percent sulfur. Uh, when you put elemental sulfur on, the, w the way I choose what materials I'm going to put on is like what the overall picture is and what you're trying to do. Now, I, I, Water quality is, is a big deal too. I just got done doing some, uh, some advanced training on water quality and how to, how to manage water when you have all kinds of stuff in it that you don't really want there so that it's not wreaking havoc. I would much rather deal with soil fertility than, than contaminated water. When I mean contaminated, it just has mineral, mineral in it, bicarbonate, you know, high levels of some of these things, and it disrupts your chemistry that you're trying to establish in the soil. Um, 
But if you have a lot of bicarbonate coming in on your water, you, you might want to choose the elemental sulfur version because when it breaks down into sulfate, it goes through the sulfuric acid form. It actually does damage to the biology in the soil. But once it transforms into the sulfate form, the biology comes back at a much higher level than it was prior to that. So in the process, there's the sulfuric acid, which is a really strong acid. Um, but it also, the sulfuric acid will neutralize bicarbonate in the soil. So it might be one of the reasons you need to use that, depending on what other needs you have, what other materials you're going to need. Ammonium sulfate, again, if you need nitrogen and sulfur. Gypsum, uh, which is calcium sulfate, again, is 22, uh, 22 to 24% calcium and the 17 to 18% sulfur. Again, you've got to be sure you have adequate calcium there before you're using gypsum. Um, Sulpamag, KMAG again, which is a source that we've seen with uh, potassium and magnesium. Uh, magnesium sulfate, Epsom salts again, with the more or less 10% magnesium, 14% sulfur in the sulfate forms. These are all sul in the sulfate forms. Then potassium sulfate, 50% K2O, and the 18% sulfur. Now let me tell you about the, what happened with sulfur. Everybody thinks that there's plenty of sulfur. Now, I'll qualify this by the average age. Does anybody know what the average age of, the, of farmers are in this country? It's pushing the upper half of, of the 50s. Uh, so these guys are thinking from quite a few years ago. And they can't find anybody to take their place. <laughs> but here, there was a, they did a, they did a test, they did some research to see if sulfur would increase the yields on wheat in the wheat growing states. So that was Kansas, which is a big one, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Colorado. They did this research to see if the sulfur would increase yields. And in all of the states that increased yields except in Kansas. And Kansas said, oh, it didn't increase the yields here. Um, so they went out to look and see, well, why, why didn't it increase the yields in Kansas? Now, Kansas was getting higher yields anyway already because of the, the types of soils they have. Although their, their soils have deteriorated quite a bit, too. And so they went out, and the guy visited with the farm manager, and they were walking across the research farm. And the farm manager leans over and elbows him, and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you a secret. He said, when everybody else is using that triple superphosphate, I use superphosphate. Now, you remember what I told you about superphosphate earlier? It's got gypsum in it, calcium sulfate. So he was putting the sulfur on all along in, from the sulfate in the, in the superphosphate, the gypsum that was in there. So he was putting the sulfur on. That's why they, he had been putting it on the whole time, and so that's why they were getting better yields than everybody else anyway on it. Because they were wondering, well, do you just cross a border, and because you're in Kansas, sulfur doesn't matter? But here, here's the issue. Sulfur is highly leachable. And it used to come from a lot of incidental sources. It used to come from fertilizers, which I just mentioned. It used to come, superphosphate used to be much more heavily used than it is now. In fact, you have a hard time finding it anymore uh, because they refined it down into the more concentrated uh, phosphate form, triple superphosphate. They took this, the gypsum out. And they're doing that because they can sell that as a separate material or, you, or, or sell it to another industry or whatever. Um, so it's gone. It used to come from the exhaust in cars, and so it would come out of the exhaust from the cars burning gasoline. They've taken it out of the gasoline. It used to come from 
coal stacks from the burning of coal, they've taken it out of the coal. Now all of these farmers were used to incidentally getting sulfur from all of these sources. It'd get up into the air and it'd fall with the rain. And uh, you know, people in the, like in the Northeast would have real problems with the sulfuric acid. It was coming down with the coming down with the rain, the acidity coming down with the rain. All that's gone. And now what you see when you look at soil tests is deficiencies as far as the eye can see with sulfur because it's so highly leachable. They're still thinking 20, 30 years ago and the conditions have changed. And they're just making an assumption that it's true. Now, I, I want to give you a practical imp implication of that condition. And I'll use wheat for that because they're not, they're, they've finally figured it out in some places and they're doing it again. But if you, if you take whole wheat, so you go out, you buy whole wheat grain, you think you're going to do something healthy for your family, right? You're going to grind that grain into flour, and you're going to make it into bread, and you're going to bake it in your oven, and you're going to serve it to your family. If that, if that grain was grown on sulfur-deficient soil, when it goes over 160 degrees in that oven, it's going to start producing the carcinogen acrylamide. That's what happens when you don't have the sulfur in that grain. And here you think you're doing something that's, that's beneficial to your family when it could be potentially hazardous to your family. This is another reason why you want to grow your own stuff. And you want to be sure that you're addressing all of the, the nutritional elements that are essential for, for healthy growth. This happens in a lot of different ways on a lot of different foods because of the lack of certain nutrients. Um, and sulfur is one of the biggest ones that you don't get the protein Remember I said you don't get those sulfur-based uh, amino acids and the protein, proteins that are, that are built as a result of that because you don't have the sulfur. And sulfur, remember I also said, like they'll say, well, I needed uh, 90 pounds of phosphate and I only needed 20 pounds or 30 pounds of sulfur. Remember I said they're measuring apples to oranges rather than apples to apples? If you take the phosphate and you reduce it you multiply it by 0.4 and you reduce it down to elemental phosphorus and compare it to elemental sulfur, it's equal amounts. If, and, and if you, or you can take it up the other way and take the elemental sulfur and raise it up to sulfate form and measure the weight, compare it, and it's, it's pretty much the same. And one is considered a major element and doesn't leach, and the other one is considered a secondary element and leaches easily. And so it's not being, it's not being supplied. Um, and so this is one of the biggest, biggest impacts on fertility, is making sure that you have adequate sulfur in, in your soil. You know, if you're going to, they're, they're saying that the phosphate is required as a major element because a certain amount of it's being to be used, and the sulfur is a secondary element, but they're measuring one as a compound, they're measuring the other as an element. If you just make them so they're apples to apples, either which way, if you measure it as elemental and elemental, or you measure it as compound and compound, Pound for pound, they're going to be equivalent. And one highly leaches. The sulfur is highly leachable. The phosphate's not going anywhere. And so sulfur is actually a major element, and it's more critical to be watched than the phosphate is because of that. And um, well, you're maintaining sulfur levels, and so as long as you're maintaining sulfur levels, you have an adequate amount. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.